I just think if Megan's going to stay up here for just a minute with her, we want to take talk. You guys can have a seat. Talk about a couple things. You know, things are really coming together. Al is back after we loaned him to another we church. We loaned him to another church. And he's back this week. Yes. Great job. You know, for the first time in, I think, 11 years, Carl caught the stick. <laughs> when he did. Okay. And then... Well, my but just faith. A, a special thank you to Carl plays with us every week. Yes, and he's, and he's very awesome. generous we love Carl. with his time and talent. And the Grace Life Worship Band played my favorite song. They do it as well, which you guys, know, which you know, is my favorite. So, so that's good. So things are really coming together, Megan. Agreed. Things are like coming back to normal. We see some people that haven't been with us for a while are back. There's something else that's going to happen next week that's going to be a step back to normal for church. And I'm very excited about it. Like, I'm already, like, really pumped up. Next week, in our study on the Gospel of Mark, we go to a sermon on the Lord's table. Mm. And so, for the first time in uh, maybe 15 months, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Now, did we decide to go ahead and share a cup? Everybody's going to drink out of the same cup. That's what we agreed. (laughs) One cup. One very glutinous around. loaf of bread. Yes. Dan Deems, Deems, his stomach just flipped five yeah. times. <laughs> the doctor, yes, Dr. Deems. Where everybody's going to dip their bread in the... No, I'm just kidding. Double actually, dip is acceptable. Double dip, double dip. We actually have these COVID-friendly... We didn't plan on it that way when we started using them five years ago. We have these COVID-friendly Lord's Table packs. They're all individual servings. Mm-hmm. So you can come and know there's not going to be a problem with that. But if you haven't been to church in a while because of COVID... And I understand it. If you've been vaccinated or that you have antibodies or you feel comfortable, we're still doing some social distancing. Next week is the week to start coming back. Mm. Because next week we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. The sermon and the Lord's table are both the same. And I just can't wait. And I'm looking forward to a precious time of worship together next week. Okay, so I just wanted to let you guys know. I I wanted Megan to be up here because it's a big part of worship. It's a massive part. It is an act of worship to partake in the Lord's table together. Jesus says, whenever you do this, it's not if you want to do this. Whenever you do this, it is a commandment that Jesus gives us to gather around his table and to remember uh, what that night was like and what it means for us today. And so it's, uh, it's really a privilege and an act of the institution of corporate worship. So It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. so awesome. Awesome. Extra gluten bread. Extra gluten bread. Extra whiny wine. And a, yeah, and a communal cup, a trough, a communal trough. No, individual serving, so they'll be safe for that. But I'm looking forward to that together. So with that in mind, we're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark, uh, week 67. I've entitled this message, Betraying Jesus. So Judas, many of us know that name. Even if you're not a Bible scholar, you know the name Judas. And when you hear the name, what is your first reaction? Most of us were appalled, right? I mean, he's a horrible villain, maybe one of the worst villains of all time, especially in the Bible. When you hear the story of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, do you shake your head in disbelief? Like, how could he have done that to our Lord? It is a natural response, right, to every story of treachery that we hear, that we read, or that we see. We always, by human nature, root against the villain in movies, at least Most normal people do. Some of you like cheer for the villain. I don't know. But most of us cheer against the villain in movies. And the reason, here's the reason why. We, as humans, we naturally tend to see ourselves on the righteous side of good versus evil. 
We just assume that's where we are. And so, because of that, we will often empathize with the victims of evil. Makes sense, right? And then, sadly enough, we add another layer to this. In self-righteousness, we quickly judge those on the wrong side of morality. Guilty of things that we, of course, would never do. We don't say the words out loud, but we do think of ourselves as morally superior to people like Judas, don't we? We think of ourselves as superior sometimes to people who may struggle with things that maybe we don't. Addiction, immorality, stealing. We even judge people with bad theology. I struggle with it, and I don't want you to pretend that you don't. We do it in theological debate. We do it in political conflict. We do it in culture wars, just about in every area. And you know what? We even do it in sports. For example, for many years, I tried to tell you guys that Tom Brady was not evil. You guys know that. I've always loved Tom Brady, right? And you wouldn't listen to me. (laughs) As your pastor, I tried to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. My hope is after today and we study the story of Judas that you will begin to see things differently. That you will abandon judgment and you will abandon any trace of spiritual arrogance when you hear stories like Judas. I hope you are reminded of your sheer desperation and how badly each one of us is in desperate need of Jesus through his Holy Spirit to intervene on our behalf in our choices. So with that in mind, let's read the passage. It's chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, and where I I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as Jesus told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, Jesus came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man he had not been born. So, I want to talk about the history of this passage. For those that are new to Grace Life, we break down each passage in three ways. The history, what about man, what did he do, and why, and how did he do it? And then we can understand the theology. What about God, what did he do, and why, and how did he do it? And only after those two can we understand the devotional application. What about me, what am I supposed to do, and why, and how do I do it? Many people like to skip to the devotional without the history and the theology, and that's where you get bad application of Scripture. 
So with that in mind, let's look at the history. I want to talk about Passover weekend. First of all, you know, it's been a very bad 24 hours for Judas. For those of you that missed last week, I just want to make sure you understand what's going on. When Judas started following Jesus, just like the other 12, all of them had these visions of grandeur that Jesus was going to be Messiah. He was going to be king. He was going to conquer Rome and reestablish the throne of David. And Judas was in it for the power and for the glory. But by Passover night, that dream is starting to fall apart for him. Jesus has made it clear his kingdom wasn't about money or power or defeating Rome or even the glory of the temple and religion. Jesus had rejected all those things. John also told us, by the way, in last week's passage, how Jesus had been stealing money the whole time he was with the disciples. For three years, he carried the money box and was pilfering stuff out of it. And now, he becomes the ultimate villain. Remember last week when Judas berated Mary, the sister of Lazarus, because she wasted a whole jar of expensive oil anointing Jesus, preparing him for his death? Remember what happened? Jesus publicly rebuked Judas that night for attacking Mary. I imagine that when that happened, Judas was probably pretty embarrassed, right? Pretty angry. Judas is disappointed. He's embarrassed. He's wasted three years pursuing a fantasy of glory and grifting. If you don't know what grifting is, Google it when you get home. You'll see that's what Judas was doing. And now he wants out. So after that Saturday night dinner where he was embarrassed after he called out Mary that merry moment that we preached about last week, Judas sneaks off to talk to the Sanhedrin, the chief priests. I believe, and we learned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, that the chief priests came together to scheme, how can we arrest Jesus? I believe Judas was at that meeting. Mark says they were glad Judas was working with them. And think about this. He makes this plan the night before Passover, so all week leading up to the cross, Judas knows this plan is in his head to betray Jesus. All week. And so with that in mind, let me talk about these Passover preparations. It may seem like this passage is not related to the Judas thing, but it most definitely is. So Passover was always a very joyful season for Jewish people. It's like springtime Jewish Christmas. Friends and family would come together. They would celebrate And they have a remembrance of how God had rescued their nation from Egyptian slavery, showing his love for his people. And the disciples were no different. They loved celebrating it too. And this is actually their third Passover with the Lord. And they're all looking forward to a great night. The morning after the merry moment, that that dinner where Judas was called out at Simon the leper's house, preparing for the Passover was their very first thought but there are no plans made. This would be highly unusual, by the way, to not have plans made ahead of time for the Passover. Most people would make them a year in advance because it's very crowded, especially if you're going to be in Jerusalem. Trying to make plans the morning of the Passover would be like finding dinner dinner reservations on the morning of Valentine's Day. Any of you men ever tried to do that? That panic and that anxiety that you feel? Oh, no, we're going to McDonald's tonight. This is not going to be good. That's what it would be like. They asked Jesus, where are we going? We haven't made any plans yet. So that's the historical background. Let's look at the theological or the spiritual. I've entitled this As It's Written. You know, Jesus makes these secret plans that we read about, right? 
with the Spirit of God, he intervenes in the hearts of two people, a water boy and a homeowner that aren't with the 12. They're in a different place. He sends Peter and John. He says, I want you to go and meet these two men and take care of all the preparations for dinner tonight for this last supper that I'm going to have with my disciples. And first, this man carrying water will meet you outside the city, and he's going to secretly lead you to another place. And in that place, there will be a master of that house who owns it. He's expecting you. Just tell them the teacher wants to know where he's going to have this Lord, uh, Passover dinner with his disciples. And what he will do, he will lead you up to a huge room upstairs that is already completely furnished. There you will make Passover dinner preparations. So Peter and John go, and they, all that happened, just like Jesus said, they walk into the city, they see a man carrying water, and they say, can you take us to the house? He says, yes, follow me. And they walk over, and they come to the house, they see the master of the house. Where are we eating? Shh, up here. I've already got it ready. So they're there the whole day, Peter and John. They didn't go back and say, hey, yeah, Passover's going to be at this place, at this place. No, they're there for the whole day prepping and waiting. The rest would not know where they were going until they were taken there by Jesus that evening. It may seem like these supernatural arrangements for Passover dinner aren't related to Judas, but they most definitely are because the passage starts by pointing out that Judas was trying to betray Jesus. Jesus knows what's happening That's why he makes these secret plans. An evening where the streets of Jerusalem are empty because everyone's home celebrating Passover, that would provide the perfect secret cover, wouldn't it, to arrest Jesus, and nobody would see it. And their plan, as we learned a couple weeks ago, they would hold Jesus for a week until the feast was over, and then they would execute him after Passover. We know this because Jesus predicted, as the prophets, that he would die exactly on 3 p.m., on the 12th month, the 12th day of the month of Nisan in 30 AD. That was the time our Jesus had to die on Passover. The, the priests don't want that to happen then. But Jesus won't allow their plans to foil what he's doing. So all these secret plans are made. Judas has no idea where he's going. He can't warn the priests. And now they have a safe Passover dinner. So there they are eating, everyone together, everyone is lounging. Just like the night before, the stage is set, and then Jesus predicts betrayal. You know what Jesus often does, right? He would reveal real-time prophetic fulfillment by quoting Scripture in the Old Old Testament. Oh, by the way, right now, this is what's happening. And he would quote the verse in the Old Testament and say, that's what's taking place right this very moment. And this is the one he quotes, Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, a prophecy of Judas. He reveals he'll be betrayed by someone eating there with him. There's probably about 30 people in that upper room. And the disciples hear this, and they're devastated by the thought that it could be one of them. They really want to know who it is. Is it me? Is it me? No, no, it can't be me, right? And Jesus reveals it is one of you 12, one of the closest to me. In other Gospels, We know it was Judas because it's confirmed that Jesus tells Judas quietly, go leave and finish your dirty deed. What you're going to do, go do quickly. But then Jesus also declares the frightening consequences for selling Jesus out to the world. He says it's better that this person would have never been born because they are going to face eternal judgment. 
By the way, those are the same consequences for those who reject Jesus and the gospel. Don't forget that. But here's the thing. God did not create Judas to be this most famous villain. This was Judas's own choice. What a tragedy, right? I mean, how is this even possible, guys, for someone to be around Jesus that much and not end up being a believer? How is that possible? 24-7 with Jesus for three years, walking and talking with the living God every day, and he ended up like this? This is the best preacher in the world, right? Miracles, the whole nine yards. And somehow... This happens? Look, it wasn't Judas's childhood dream to grow up and embezzle money from Jesus for three years and then sell Jesus out to the priest. That wasn't what he grew up thinking he was going to be. Yet that's exactly where he ends up, fulfilling a prophecy about Messiah's betrayal. And it was his choice. But don't worry, I don't want you to see Jesus as a victim. When we think of Judas as a villain... And of course he is. We naturally tend to empathize with Jesus. Boy, poor Jesus was betrayed. Because some of you, most of us, have experienced deep betrayal. Some of you are going through it right now. And it's painful. But I doubt any of us would have experienced it to this level. But the story of Judas is not about victimhood. So don't get sidetracked by that. There is rich theology in this passage about our human depravity and the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus. That's why he says in this verse, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This statement by Jesus is powerful. It is a very clear declaration that this isn't even about Judas, but it's about Jesus and his authority and his power. Jesus, our Lord, was in total control of every moment, every person, every dynamic, including the human depravity that is surrounding him. We learned last week, right, that Jesus knew who Judas was for three years, that he was stealing. How can Jesus, who's in control of every moment, be a victim at all? He cannot be. Even as he's betrayed, he is full Lord and sovereign God. From knowing who Judas was, to secret dinner plans, to predicting his betrayal, Jesus is weaving for us in this passage a beautiful, beautiful lesson. Our Lord is no victim. He's in control. An unstoppable force bent on completing his work on his terms, on his timetable. In fact, this miracle of his power and exquisite control over the whole Holy Week, it certainly makes the resurrection later on more believable. Okay, here's the personal. I want to talk about the Judas in us. You knew I was going to go there, didn't you, some of you? You knew it. This was my social media campaign this week. If you don't believe you're capable of being like Judas, then you don't understand how desperately you need Jesus. It's true. Because all of us have our own Judas condition, our own Judas infirmity. Look what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's what the Hebrew means in this poetry. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, Judas's problem began in his own heart. His own. 
depravity. And it's just as pervasive in us as it was with him. The story of Judas isn't so much a warning that we shouldn't be like him and don't betray Jesus. The story of Judas is that left to our own free will, we are Judas. Judas is a warning about what we are all capable of when it's left to us to determine our own spiritual destiny. Right? And it's easy to sit in judgment of Judas, thinking we would handle his temptation so much differently, right? We're no Judas. I'm going to tell you, I believe, theologically and practically, logically, that if any of the other disciples had been left to their own deceitful, desperately sick heart, they would have done the same thing Judas did. But they had intervention. See, this is the first real application of truth for you today in this passage. Don't fall into the trap of thinking you're somehow better than Judas. You are not. Because if Scripture is true, Jeremiah 17, 9, we are all potential Judases. And we're all going to need something beyond ourselves to help us choose to follow Jesus. We must realize, left to our own depraved hearts, we are all Judas unless the Spirit of God intervenes. Which brings me to my next point. We need intervention. Without that merciful intervention, any of us in Judas's shoes would fail just as he did. Ultimately, the results of every man's depravity without intervention will be this. Are you ready? Rejection of Jesus resulting in our judgment, which is spelled out in verse 21. It'd be better that he was not even born. And just like Judas, who, by the way, heard all the best preaching, right? Just like Judas today, we could hear the best preaching on the planet, have the best ministry programs around us and our family. We can have the best worship, the best church building. All of those are powerless without the Spirit of God intervening in your desperately sick heart. Not even a disciple can choose Jesus over the world without the Spirit first drawing him and imparting the precious gift of faith we read about in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is where the components of predicting his betrayal and making secret dinner arrangements are so pivotal and inspirational to this theology. It is the sovereign Jesus in charge. And we all desperately need that same spirit of God that was able to make secret dinner plans with these two people that Peter and John would meet. The same Jesus that allows them to have intervention. It's that same spirit that intervenes in our wicked hearts. It's the power that kept Jesus in control. That's the same power that intervenes to save us from our own sick, depraved consciousness and to save us from depravity's consequences. And so once we believe that, once we understand that, you know what, without the Spirit of God, I'm Judas, once you really finally understand you're not better than anyone else on this planet, that's when we understand 
what a desperate cry is. If a disciple with Jesus every day for three years couldn't choose Jesus, what chance do you have? (laughs) What chance do we have? Our condition is certainly desperate, is it not? This story should convince us that any hope in ourselves, in our own free will to choose righteousness and following Jesus is really foolish and it's dangerous and that reality should leave us desperate. We all contain the depravity that created Judas and we are all subject to those same consequences without that sovereign spiritual intervention and once we recognize the nature of our sick heart with the stakes that are so high, eternal consequences, then we understand the only logical, rational reaction is to cry out. Psalm 61, 1 and 2. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I cry out to you, God, My heart is weak. It is sick. Please, Spirit of God, lead me to the rock. And who is the rock? It is Jesus. What is a better cry, do you think, that would work that's better? Jesus, I need salvation, but at least I'm not like Judas. (laughs) Or does this sound more like something? Jesus, unless you intervene and overcome my wickedness, I will end up just like Judas. Which makes more sense to you? Logically, theologically, spiritually. You see the difference? You see the desperation? It's why we reject putting trust in our own free will. We should be, listen, this is what I want to impart to you. We should be distrustful, even a measure of disdainfulness for our own hearts, our own will. Because just like Judas, it will always betray Jesus. Instead, we celebrate and embrace the moment that desperation actually set us free from the prison of our deceitful, sick, wicked hearts. And just like Judas, however, you do need to make a choice today. And there really is only one rational one to make. Abandon your own free will and choose to embrace desperate surrender to a sovereign Jesus. Is this the desire of your heart today? Can you relate to what I'm saying? That, yeah, I disdain my own heart. I have no confidence in my own free will. Jesus, please rescue me from my own free will because without it, I am Judas. Can you understand what I'm saying? If that's the desire of your heart today, if so, then the Jesus who made miraculous secret dinner plans, you know what he's doing right now? He's intervening in your heart, giving you a new one. By his spirit, he is empowering you to instead of choosing betrayal and selling out Jesus for the world, he's empowering you to choose salvation, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. 
Doesn't that sound a lot better than confidence in your own free will? Doesn't that sound more comforting? More inspiring? More promising? Heavenly Father, we come to you today and, man, we do not have any confidence in our own free will. Yes, we fight like cats and dogs to cling to it. We don't like it when people impede on it. We don't like it when people try to work around it. We love our free will, but spiritually we know that trusting in it will not go well. It would be better for us if we had never been born. So, Father, I pray that just like you intervened in the hearts of those that you made secret dinner plans, that same Spirit of God will intervene in our hearts and help us recognize that unless we accept that intervention, we are Judas. Lord, help us to grow in confidence in your intervention and less in our own righteousness. Help us to choose salvation, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Give us, O Lord, today, at this moment in our hearts, that desperate cry. Lead us to the rock that is higher than I. In Jesus' name, amen. That's good stuff. I love the gospel of Mark. I'm excited about next week as we study the Lord's table. Uh, For those of you that are home, if you feel comfortable, this is the week to come back. I'm excited. I can't wait to see you. And yes, we're not giving a bunch of hugs. We'll do some elbow bumps or whatever you're comfortable with. But we're going to have a great time of fellowship together around the table of our Lord. We love you guys. Have a great week. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back.